Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Lord, on this day we remember what you did 2,000 years ago, how you offered your body as a sacrifice to be crucified on a Roman cross so that through that sacrifice we might know life. And as a testimony of the power of your resurrection life, we gather here as people called by your name to glory and exalt in you and to honor you for what you have done on our behalf. And so even during this service as we continue with looking through your word, and and in a little while gathering together for uh, your table. We just pray that the presence of your Holy Spirit would unite all of our hearts under that common desire to make Christ center of our lives and to exalt him as Lord and Savior of our souls. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Back in a high school, um, some years back, I remember on one particular Good Friday, we were gathered together as a bunch of friends who were in youth group together in the Chicagoland area. And that morning, because none of us had school that day, we had decided to meet at one particular friend's house and then sort of make a plan to what we were going to do. And there were probably a couple dozen of us gathered there at that friend's house that day. And after some discussion, eventually a consensus seemed to emerge that we decided we were going to go to Lake Michigan and hang out at the beach. However, there was a sort of a vocal minority in that group that uh, didn't really like those plans very much. So they were sort of complaining that that didn't really seem like a very uh, good way to observe Good Friday, that it probably ought to have been spent in a more solemn mood of... um, having a house worship service, and then maybe we could have a prayer meeting and just spend the whole day sort of singing uh, worship songs together and praying. Interestingly, uh, what ensued after that was a theological discussion among high school students on the nature of Good Friday and its implications to the Christian life. Uh, Was it to be observed like a memorial service for Uh, the death of a lost loved one? Uh, Should it be remembered uh, as a focus on the horrible suffering of Jesus Christ? Um, Should Christians go about Good Friday in in hushed tones, somber mood? Should we wear black? Or was Good Friday a day of celebration, of joy, uh, because of the glorious gift of salvation? that had been won for us that day through the cross of Jesus Christ. A day at the beach, a picnic with friends. Was that then, therefore, a legitimate expression of Good Friday, to have a good time and party together? The conversation eventually led us to semantics, where it's like, why, why Good Friday? Why is it called Good Friday? Um, what's so good about the mutilation and execution of an innocent man? on a Roman cross. But others would say, well, after all, isn't it good news what happened on that Good Friday 
2,000 years ago. And I think as that whole conversation developed, what eventually ended up was we reached sort of an impasse in the debate. And so from my recollection of it, what we ended up doing was we had a brief worship service and prayer meeting, and then we went to the beach that day. So we, we sort of had the both of best worlds. I'm guessing that some of you had similar struggles like this as to exactly how we're supposed to observe Good Friday. What, what is the exact tone we're trying to strike here in honoring the death of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Is it to be a time of joy or of sadness, of grief or celebration? Well, I believe the answer is yes. <laughs> um, let me explain a little bit. I think the Good Friday observance can only be understood in, lar- in, in, in light of the larger picture of the entire Easter weekend. And then I would argue even larger than that of the Passion Week, and then if we could expand it even further to the Lent season that we honor in preparation for the Easter holiday. In Easter, we celebrate with great joy and celebration the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the empty tomb, and the meaning of resurrection life in your life and mine. But in our desire to celebrate on this weekend, I think there is a point to be taken that we need to be careful not to get ahead of ourselves. Because it seems like there is also this place for Good Friday, a time when we take pause before Sunday comes to remember the great cost at which the celebration and joy is granted to us. To remember the horrible events that day 2,000 years ago, before Easter could happen. But I would also like to say I don't think Good Friday is to be celebrated with an air of Paul and like as if uh, we're at a funeral service, as if this were a memorial for a dead one. Because unlike the first disciples 2,000 years ago who were in utter confusion and chaos and were totally thrown into a spiral of of fear and discouragement because of the death of their master, we do know that Easter came. And so I think our Good Good Friday celebration is a sense of solemnity before the cross of Jesus Christ as we reconsider what he had done on our behalf. And yet, nevertheless, it is also informed by Easter as we understand that there is joy waiting for us at the end of this dark tunnel. And so with that sort of bigger picture in mind, I want to talk today a bit about how Good Friday informs our repentance, what it means for us to ask God, forgive us our sins. Not only at the time that we first became Christians, came to know the gospel message, but as an ongoing practice that is essential in the Christian life as we daily come before him and seek his forgiveness. The Bible has a wide range of metaphors to describe sin. You can talk about sin as missing the mark, of as a transgression against God's command. Sin is bondage. Sin is imprisonment. Sin is addiction. Sin is a stain. There's all of this kind of vocabulary that the Bible uses to talk about sin. But there are two metaphors that are used more than any of the others, and it's not even a close second. And I want to talk a little about those two metaphors that are used in Scripture. 
And we're going to get a little bit heady here into some theology, and I apologize for that, but I think you'll sort of see as we connect it to what we mean about the way we tend to repent of our sins, and I think you'll see the connection pretty clearly as we bridge over to that. If you look in the Old Testament, especially the earlier part of the Old Testament, the predominant metaphor is used to talk about sin is as a weight or a heavy burden placed upon us. And then to talk about salvation is often described as that heavy load that is lifted off of us. We're set free from that burden of sin. Now, when the Bible talks in a lot of these other metaphors like a stain or as transgression and as missing the mark, it often will use that metaphor directly in the English language. But the problem is when the Bible uses this metaphor of weight and of freedom from that weight, it usually uses generic language of simply saying you're forgiven of your sins. And so that's why most Christians who use the English Bible don't understand this biblical metaphor, often talking about a heavy burden that we are called to carry. If, but if you understand that that's the metaphor that is being most often used, a lot of Bible passages in the Old Testament have a whole new light to them. We can understand sin in an entirely different dimension. Isaiah chapter 1, 2 to 4, this famous passage, listen to that metaphor of weight or burden in these words of the prophet. Hear, O, o, uh, <laughs> Hold on a second here. Okay. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Did you get catch it? In ancient Israelite society, children were the inheritance of their parents' estate. Animals were mere property, beasts of burden. But what Isaiah is saying is, is this. My people are my children. But they are so stubborn and hard-hearted, they are more ignorant than animals. And so in this strange reversal, he's saying they end up carrying burdens like these animals, the burden of their sin. They carry it like a heavy weight upon themselves, like oxen. If you look in the book of Leviticus in chapter 16, there is also this commandment given through Moses about what is called the Day of Atonement, the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, what modern Jews today would call Yom Kippur. On this day, the high priest, the descendants of Aaron, were to take a goat and he was to slaughter it and let the blood run free and that goat would take on the sins of Israel and be sacrificed for their sins. But then in Leviticus 16, the high priest was also commanded to take a second live goat. And on this one, he was to place both of his hands on its head, and he was supposed to confess all of the sins of Israel as he laid his hands on its head. And then a person was to drag this animal out into the wilderness and set it free. This goat became known as the scapegoat. Now, the problem here is that we tend to think most often about sin in terms of a legal status situation. 
about being declared guilty or righteous. And so for the high priest to put his hand on that animal and declare our sins and then release it into the wilderness seems like it was more like a legal declaration, transferring our guilty status onto this animal and being let go. But the wording is actually different in the Old Testament. In chapter 20 of Leviticus 16, it says, the goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. You see that? So the picture is not of legal status, but it's of burden bearing. Let this goat carry the weight of your sin on itself and then let it go in the wilderness where it will die without a shepherd because of that guilt. As we move then from the Old Testament into the New Testament, it's interesting. The metaphor actually changes, and it's almost impossible to find this weight metaphor in the New Testament. Instead, there is a shift in the primary understanding of sin, and it goes from weight to that of debt owed. From bearing a heavy burden to owing an enormous debt because of our sin. And so in Jesus' day, the debt metaphor became the primary way to understand our sin and the guilt that we have as a result of it. And so it's no surprise that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus himself, when he teaches his disciples how to pray in Matthew 6, verse 12, he says, Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Okay? Forgive our debts as we also forgive our debtors. In Matthew 18, Jesus also tells the parable of this unmerciful servant. And in that parable, he again returns to the debt metaphor of sin being represented as an enormous debt that no one can pay off before their king. Now, Let me make a few comments about that. I doubt that most of us probably understood that these were the primary metaphors used in the Old and New Testaments. Maybe there are a few seminarians here in our midst, and they say, oh, yeah, this is old hat. I've had it in lectures through systematic theology. But I'm going to guess that the average Christian sitting here in this auditorium has not really encountered these uh, metaphors to be the primary ways in which sin is described. But what I want to argue is this. By the way that we deal with our sin, the way that we try to manage our sin, I think we demonstrate implicit knowledge that these are the ways we understand sin. I want you to first think about the idea of bearing your sin as a weight or a burden on you. Haven't we all experienced that before? Haven't we all felt the crushing weight of sin as though it were a burden that we were called to bear. And I want to ask this. How do we most often react when we experience that in our lives? And what I want to argue is is this. When we feel the weight of sin upon us, we do whatever we can to try to lighten that load. And I would argue we do it primarily by trying to justify ourselves. It becomes one of the ways that we can mitigate the ugliness of our sin and not make it feel so unbearable in the face of what we do so often and how we disappoint ourselves and God. We justify ourselves. Confronted by the weight of our sin, we construct all kinds of elaborate explanations to justify why we do what we do. I know it sounds like gossip, 
But I really feel others need to know what kind of person he is. I know I should be more supportive and loving as a wife, but you have no idea how hard it is to respect this guy. I know I've fallen a lot to sexual temptation, but my wife just refuses to meet the needs that I have. And so the way we often spin it, we are not in fact the guilty ones. We are actually the victims. It's not about what I've done. It's about what's being done to me. And if you only understood the circumstances under which I've acted, you would not dare judge me. You would come to see it as reasonable, what I have done. I think this problem has been compounded by the entrance of modern psychology into uh, our world. And listen, I'm not wholesale rejecting psychology. I was a psych major in undergrad. Uh, If there are psychologists among you, please don't feel you're being singled out. I think there is a role for psychology. But one thing I want to say is this. The goal of psychology is not to acknowledge guilt or to assign blame or to seek forgiveness. It is to understand ourselves and help others to understand us better. And that approach to our pathologies has had a profound impact on the way that we deal with sin in our lives. Look at what Larry Crabb, a well-known, best-selling Christian author and Christian psychologist, had to say about this experience that he was confronted with. Some time ago, I took a friend into my confidence and told him of a problem that made me feel ashamed. I confessed to occasional bouts of irrational jealousy when another friend enjoyed applause that normally comes my way. It had taken some time to work up the courage to share my struggle with my friend. And when I did, I expected him to be thoughtfully intrigued and to explore my problem with compassionate fascination. Instead, his brow furrowed in immediate concern as he replied, Larry, jealousy is really ugly. I've seen it do terrible things to people. That was it. No follow-up. No questions. He changed the subject. His remark caught me off guard. It was not at all what I had anticipated or wanted. I felt unfairly rebuked, entirely unhelped, and more than a little annoyed. A better counselor, I told myself, would have helped me understand my jealousy so that I would better deal with it, not quickly judge me for it. And This is what he says at the end. I now believe that his simple comment, one that broke most of the rules of accepted counseling procedure, had more potential to stimulate deep change than hours of insightful, non-judgmental exploration ever could have. And that's from a psychologist. You see, the cry of the modern sinner is not forgive me, it's understand me. Walk a mile in my shoes and you would not dare judge me for what I have done. This causes problems, doesn't it? It causes problems when we get confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me say this. If we mitigate the heavy weight of our guilt by justifying ourselves and trying to explain ourselves to be understood, how do we deal with the debt issue? How do we deal with that? This shadow of debt hovering over us because of our guilt 
I would argue this. We bargain with God. We come to the bargaining table. We attempt to counterbalance the debt of our sin with promises for more righteousness in the future. God, I know I failed again, but I'll make it up to you. I'll try harder. I'll do better next time. You can count on me. This mentality can even turn repentance itself into a work in which we try to earn merit in God's eyes, earn his forgiveness. And I've seen this a lot. Maybe if I just stay here long enough, beat my breast, shed enough tears, God will forgive me. Maybe if I just sit on my knees, wait until my kneecaps feel like they're going to explode. You know, pain is good. Pain is a good thing. If I feel enough pain and I completely cut off the circulation in my legs and to the point where, you know, it's just, it's just I'm about to die, maybe God will hear my repentance. and He'll forgive me. God will accept me then. In other words, if we loathe ourselves enough, then God doesn't have to loathe us. We can earn back some sense of favor in his eyes. You know what? I think the temptation to bargain with God becomes particularly strong when we're dealing with habitual sins. When we're dealing with habitual sins. We feel guilty because we sound like a broken record offering the same prayer again and again and again. And we know what that feels like, don't we? Yep, it's me again, God. Guess what? <laughs> I know I said I wasn't going to do it again. I know I made all these promises yesterday, two hours ago. But here I am again, messed up again. Same old prayer, same old repentance. There is a sense in which we feel like we just can't keep coming back to God empty-handed, don't we? At least not with just our empty prayers. We feel like we've drawn from this well one too many times, like that broken record, and that at least this time I have to bring God something, you know? I can't, I can't just come with these prayers again. I have to show something that I can come to him with to make it more acceptable, more palatable for him to hear my confession. I think this attitude was in existence from the very first era of, the, of, of sin. Micah chapter 6, verse 6 to 7, captures this attitude perfectly when it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with calves a year old. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? This was what Micah was pointing at was one of the most horrific sins of Israel where they borrowed the religion of these pagan Canaanites and they actually took their children, their firstborn sons, and burnt them alive in this horrible fire as a desperate act of finding approval in God's eyes. And what Micah says is, is this really what it's about? Is this what I ask of you? Do you offer me the fruit of your flesh, your own children, 
to somehow appease me and find favor in my eyes. Jeremiah addresses the same sin in his book when he says, they have built the high places of Baal to burn their, their sons in the, in the fire of offering to Baal. Something I did not command or mention, nor did it even enter my mind. So God says, where did you get this crazy idea? Did I even wanted something like this? But this is the human mentality, isn't it? When I have failed gloriously, I'm going to sacrifice gloriously. And I will prove to God how sorry I am. And when he sees that sacrifice, surely I'll win over his heart. And he'll forgive me. And everything will be okay between God and me. The Bible makes it clear that neither self-justification nor bargaining has any place in our relationship with him. In essence, what God tells us in the pages of his word is put away the justification games. Quit trying to spin things in a way that makes it seem like what you've done is not so bad. Stop the silliness of trying to bargain with me. No heroic act of sacrifice. No tear-filled promises to try harder. None of this has any value in what you need in your life to be restored and forgiven of your sins. All of these vain attempts to provide a solid argument, to give God some kind of rationale for why it would make sense for him to forgive us, just empty. In fact, the Bible tells us we have no leverage in this matter. We have no leverage. We have no argument, no legitimate point of view to demand of God that he ought to forgive us. In fact, the Bible says we're utterly and hopelessly lost in our sinful state. There's absolutely nothing we can do to contribute to the solution. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 in the words of Eugene Peterson's translation, the message reads like this. I really like the way he put it. But God put his love on the line for us by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatever to him. Don't you love that phrasing? He gave us his son for us while we were of really no worth or no value to him. Nothing that we could bring to the bargaining table to argue why this ought to be so. Our part is simply to receive by faith what God has done on our behalf, to receive that as an act of grace. What I want to say in light of those metaphors is this. Christ on the cross means the weight of our sin has been lifted. Christ on the cross means the weight of our sin has been lifted. Micah chapter 7, verse 19 says, You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depth of the sea. Again, if you know that this weight metaphor exists in the Old Testament, you see these glorious pictures of what that looks like. What it's saying is he's taken that weight and he's just thrown it into the ocean. That's the picture that's given. It says God takes the weight of your sin and he hurls it into the sea so that you can be free. Isaiah 53, verse 4. Listen for the weight metaphor again. 
Surely he took on our affirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. You see that picture of an animal carrying weights on him. Isaiah 53, verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's hard not to see that scapegoat picture in the picture of the Messiah, isn't it? The picture of one that bears our weight so that we don't have to carry that crushing weight anymore. And in the words of Jesus himself, Matthew eleven twenty eight, these words of amazing comfort, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. Are you tired of carrying the weight of your sin on yourself? Come to me, receive my free gift, and you'll experience freedom for the first time. It'll be like a load has been taken off of your shoulders. Another thing we can say is this, Christ on the cross means that our debt has been canceled. Christ on the cross means our debt has been canceled. 1 John chapter 1 Verse 9 says this, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, I had memorized this verse as a high school student. And this verse had always bothered me because there's a particular word in that verse that just doesn't seem to belong. And it's the word just, just. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Just seems like a strange word choice to me. When I think about the justice of God, I associate it a lot more with his judgment, his wrath, than I do his love and forgiving mercy. It seems like John wasn't a very good writer, you know? That if he was really writing as a good theologian, he probably would have picked a better word like grace or mercy or love. But the point I think John is making is this. Our confidence in receiving forgiveness from God every time we repent lies precisely in his justice. Because the message of the gospel is this. Christ bore the penalty of our sin on himself. And so every time I repent, God forgives me because he will not punish me for what Christ has already been punished for. To do so would be unjust. And that is the message of repentance under the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the confidence that you and I have of approaching God again and again and again with all of our failings. You are a just God, and Christ has paid the penalty for that sin. So, Lord, you cannot punish me for what Christ has already been punished for. That is my confidence in coming before him, not my self-justification, not my bargaining chips that I have before him, but the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, in the Old Testament, when a Jew wanted to give repentance at the temple, he couldn't come empty-handed. He would have to bring a spotless animal, a bull or a goat or something, depending on the sin or his status in Israelite society. And what he would do with the help of the priest is he would lay his hand on that animal. 
And he would confess all of his sins as he laid his hands, and it would be a symbolic transference of his guilt to that animal, and then they would have to kill that animal. He would have to take a knife and slit its throat and watch it bleed out in front of him. You know, it's interesting. I've gone on about eight short-term mission trips to Africa over the years. And as the leader of these teams, usually I'm, we're given like a goat or some sheep as an expression of appreciation by the people that we're helping in Africa. And so as the team leader, what I would typically do is ask if there were any volunteers in the team that wanted to slaughter the goat or the lamb. And invariably, there's always some macho posturing among the guys. I've never had a girl volunteer to date, but there's always among the guys some posturing. Going, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, I'll do it all. I'll do it. Everyone's almost fighting for the opportunity. Well, slaughter day comes, and this sheep has been living with us in our camp for a few days, and we've all gotten to know it after a while. It starts to almost become like a pet. One team even named it Dolly, you know, and at that point, the girls refused to eat the meat, actually, after we cooked it, despite the fact that everyone was starving. When the day comes to slaughter the animal, I think there's a shock because they think there's some kind of special way that you do this, and the African just basically hands you a kitchen knife. It looks like you're going to pull it out of your own kitchen drawer. And then the Africans will hold down the animal, expose its neck, and tell you to just cut away. And I have to tell you, almost every guy <laughs> suddenly doesn't become so macho anymore. His bravado suddenly disappears. And to this date, I have never personally volunteered to kill one of these animals because there's something horrible about it. I don't know if you've ever watched an animal being slaughtered, but there's something horrible about seeing the lifeblood of an animal pouring out of its neck as it's gurgling and screaming and crying out, holding on to its last bit of life. But that was the experience of the Jews every time that they repented. Can you imagine that? Every single time you go to the temple to repent your sins, after you get done praying, you got to take that knife and you got to cut the neck of that animal open and watch it bleed in front of you. There was a clear message in that ritual, wasn't there? True repentance requires blood. It requires blood. Without blood, there is no forgiveness. But what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that the blood of the animals was weak. In fact, the only power that it held was that it pointed forward to the blood of the Lamb of God that would one day be shed. That is why the Israelites had to kill animal after animal after animal. This is the message to Christians. When we come before God in repentance, we also don't come empty-handed. We come with the blood of Jesus Christ. And every time you feel the weight of your sin of failing God again and lying for your promises you've made for the umpteenth time, you are not there empty-handed. You come with the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, because of Christ's blood, I can come before you, Lord, and have my sins forgiven. Hebrews 10, verse 19 to 23 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open to us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled by cle- to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, 
And having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. He is faithful. Every time we come in repentance, we claim the blood of Jesus Christ, just like the Old Testament Jews did at the temple. And every time that God sees us in that act of repentance, he sees his son dying on a cross, and he forgives us again and again and again. Even in our habitual sin, we can approach the throne of grace with boldness, knowing that we can draw near to God and find his mercy endlessly over and over and over again. We may sound like a broken record, but God hears our prayers every time, not because of anything we bring to the table, but because he sees his son, because he sees his son. And so he forgives again and again and again. How powerful is the blood of Jesus Christ? The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, verse 16, 16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And I think that is what repentance ought to look like in the life of a Christian that truly understands the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a call to put away our efforts at self-justification, of trying to produce our own press to make it look like we're not as bad as we really are. In fact, if you only knew the half of what I go through in life, you would know why I do what I do. And you would have compassion on me, not judge me. God says, put away that game of self-justification. He says, put away your bargaining chips. With what will you come to me? People have even burnt their children for me. Do you think that you can top that? What great act of sacrifice do you think you can bring that will somehow win my heart and impress me to cause me to say, well, let's give Joe another try. God says, put that away. It has no place here. But every time that you come having failed again, every time you know you have not met my standard, come in confidence and boldness to the throne of grace and receive that forgiveness again and again. Because every time I see you, I see my son. And because of what I have done to him, I will never do it to you if you only believe. There's one implication of what I've been sharing tonight that I've been sort of debating about, do I want to go there? And I know we have to wrap up here, so let me just end this with this final thought. There are some that look at this whole logic of debt and um, redemption and ransom, and they say, you know, if this is really the Christian God, you're not really painting the picture of this guy. Because in essence, what you're really telling me is that here is a world filled with guilt, and they all are now owing a debt to God, their maker. But none of them have the capacity to pay this debt, and so they're utterly lost and hopeless, condemned to their sin. And so what this God does is he takes an innocent man, and he kills him, tortures him on a Roman cross. And this is something that theologians have wrestled with throughout the ages. What kind of God is that that would kill an innocent man 
for the crime of the guilty. If a human judge did that, would we consider that a good story? A positive thing? Something to be exalted in? I think most of us would say that's a miscarriage of justice. That's a horrible guy. What kind of a vengeful judge does that? And no less his own son. But the full message of the gospel is this. That's not really a good way to represent what happened 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. Because what happened was that no less than God himself was on that cross in the second person of Jesus Christ. And that's why the story is different. An innocent man died that day, but that innocent man was God himself, Christ, who voluntarily offered his life in sacrifice out of love for us so that through that sacrifice, you and I might know life and be forgiven. The judge became the victim and died on our behalf. As John records in his gospel, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Let us pray. So we get ready to enter into communion at the Lord's table. I just want you to reflect on what we've been talking about this evening. I think that, unfortunately, although many of us claim to follow the gospel of grace, in our struggle with our personal sin that we wrestle with even after many years of being a Christian, then we still find ourselves in a place where we're playing games with God. We do a lot of funny business to try to sort of win God's heart over and to somehow make ourselves look better than we really are. And I think the real message of the gospel is Before God, there is nothing uh, that we can hide. Before God, there is no impression that we can make that is going to woo us, uh, woo him to us, cause him to somehow be moved to forgive us. The message is that we bring nothing to the table that we can contribute to our own salvation. But in that utterly hopeless situation, it's this amazing message of hope. It says that God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I'm going to guess that there's some of you here in this room that are trapped in the bondage of sin, stuck in some pretty bad habitual sins that you loathe yourself for and hate yourself for. And it's maybe destroying your marriage. It's destroying your financial life. It's destroying your friendships. And you're sort of at your wit's end, you know? You, don't, you just don't know what to do anymore. You just sort of feel like you're going through the ritual of saying the same prayers and nothing really changes and you're sounding like a broken record. And at this point, you've almost lost heart in even repenting anymore because you almost say, what's the point? I mean, God already knows two hours later I'm going to probably break my promise and do the exact same thing again. I think the message of the gospel is whenever you have failed, whenever you have sinned, whenever you feel the crushing weight your own failure understand that there is blood for us available through the cross of Jesus Christ and cling to that blood and say because of your son and what you have done to him I come before you in confidence I don't want to even look at myself in the mirror sometimes but nevertheless I come looking for that bread of life again and again to feast at your table of grace and receive your mercy not because of anything that you see in me, but because when you look down at me, 
you see your son and the blood that was shed for me. Dear Lord, we just pray as we wrestle with this battle against sin. Lord, we confess before you that even as Christians, we often seem to face more defeat than victories in our life. And I pray particularly for any of us that might be wrestling with certain habitual sins that really have seemed to God has captured us under bondage. God, I pray we will experience true victory and freedom in Christ this day. Lord, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers over all of us, we approach you in confidence and boldness. How dare we ask you forgive us one more time? And yet we do because you are a just God and you will not punish us for what you've punished your son for. And so we just thank you, Jesus, for what you've done. Every single day, we remember the cross. Remember what your blood represents for us. And in that that alone, we glory. In Christ's name we pray. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you'd like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.